This is Outrageous History. Welcome to Outrageous History. I'm Ernest Granson. The Roman Empire, generally regarded as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, empire in civilization, responsible for vital advancements in engineering, architecture, law, literature, science, and technology, but also an empire filled with violence, depravity, and corruption. How could such an advanced assemblage of humanity be so contradictory in nature? No doubt the Roman Empire is saddled with a sordid image, and like most of us who have a passing interest, I wouldn't have questioned what we hear about that reputation. But it's an interesting question to raise. Were the Romans any worse than any other empire or civilization, the present included? That's the question that historian and author Dr. Jerry Toner is asking in his book, Infamy, the Crimes of Ancient Rome. Jerry is Director of Studies in Classics at Churchill College at the University of Cambridge and an affiliated lecturer at the Classics Faculty. Jerry is with us now. Hi there, Jerry. Glad you could join us today. It's a great pleasure to be here. Jerry, you've published a number of books about ancient Rome, uh, and in this book, you draw a comparison between the Roman Republic and other eras of uh, eras of history, including, for instance, the Middle Ages and even our contemporary society. So how do you feel that picture that we have of the Roman Empire has parallels with the world that we live in now? Well, I think, uh, like all, like all, uh, societies, the Roman Empire, it, it's very different depending on how you look at it. You can look at it in terms of its great institutions and its great in, uh, achievements, uh, some of which you mentioned before, uh, and then it can look like a very stable, uh, ordered society. Or once you dig a bit deeper, you can soon find all kinds of crime, criminal activity, uh, and nowhere is this better found than in people like the bad emperors. I mean, think about Nero, for example, uh, who did all kinds of dreadful uh, acts. Uh, and yet there he was, uh, the head of this supposedly highly ordered society. So I think, uh, as with any society, when you look at the kind of ideals uh, and compare it with the reality, you often find a, a very big disconnect. Uh, and just as today, you might find... Uh, the kind of rhetoric of uh, equality or democracy that we have in the West is very much at odds with the huge level of, say, economic hierarchy. So in the Roman world, you had uh, a massive difference between how different people were treated within the empire, uh, which all depended upon the, uh, their legal status. Well, though you established that the violence and, and, and the decadence was very much ingrained within the culture of that Roman Empire. But you also said to a certain extent that that's maybe why the empire was so powerful. And, and he pro provided as an example the, the story of the two uh, twins, uh, Romulus and Remus, who uh, supposedly uh, uh, founded the city. But so tell us about that connection between the story of those twins and, and what was happening in the empire. I mean, what's interesting about that 
what that foundation myth of Romulus and Remus is it very much comes to the fore uh, in the first and second centuries BC. So at the point when Rome is actually acquiring its own substantial empire, particularly in the aftermath of the defeat of Carthage in the Punic Wars. So Rome is looking to understand why it's been so successful, what has made it uh, into the biggest empire that, that, that Europe knows at that time. And so they create this kind of myth which very much emphasises the, the kind of military strength of its founders, uh, the fact that they are prepared to put everything uh, ahead of, um, you know, sorry, they're, they're prepared to put, uh, what, do whatever it takes uh, to put the state first. And of course, Romulus ends up killing his own brother Remus uh, because you know, that is what Rome requires him to do. And so I think that kind of military toughness was something that they understood was what had actually won them the empire in the first place. Um, and you see that reflected in their enjoyment of gruesome entertainment like uh, gladiatorial combat. Um, but of course, it also reflects a certain anxiety that they might be losing this military toughness, that empire has brought them great wealth, it's brought them luxury, uh, it's, it means that perhaps they are not going to be quite as militaristic and terrifying as they had been. And so I think there's also uh, an element of fear that they are going to lose what they've gained. Now, much of your book describes uh, the crimes that were taking place during ordinary uh the ordinary the lives of the ordinary citizens and that i mean there that seemed to be in so much detail uh and uh, so I'm, I'm really curious as where you got that kind of information from and also what they what those reports tell us about roman society well there are all kinds of bits of evidence you can get i mean you get you do get some mentions in literary texts so like histories written by uh, Tacitus, for example, or Suetonius. But on the whole, those histories are written by powerful elite figures who are not really interested in day-to-day -day crime. So most of the evidence for that comes from petitions. So this is where someone who has suffered uh, um, a crime, so say has had something stolen from them uh, or suffered a violent attack, uh, there's no police force to go to what they would do is they would have to petition the local governor or commander or centurion and ask him to look into the crime uh, and, and, and solve it, except that that person would have to tell them who had done it and provide the evidence. So the state actually did um, very little. But for these individuals, it means that the details of the crimes, or at least the crimes that they allege have happened to them, have survived on some of these petitions. Um, so they provide us with a lot of gritty detail about uh, what life was like for ordinary people in the empire. Um, the problem with them is that many of them, or most of them come from Egypt. Now, Egypt, as many of you may know, is, was uh, yeah, a, a, a province of the empire that had been a civilization for thousands of years. It was a very developed ordered society. So it may be that we're getting a slightly different take on society there than we would, we would get in Roman Britain, for example. 
Okay, so if, if some of that applied to Egypt, are we able to make any kind of assumptions about the uh, the lives of Romans themselves within that particular province, the original province? Um, well, we also have other sources like uh, law books, which obviously give us examples of the kind of uh, criminal activity that uh, people thought was worth litigating about. Um, the problem with that is the law books tended to be written by the wealthier property members of, of society. And so most of it is to do with property disputes, land disputes, that kind of thing. So it represents a very different kind of set of concerns uh, that ordinary people would have. Um, but another interesting body of evidence we have, which is comes from across the empire, are curse tablets. So this is where you have suffered, you're a victim of a crime, you don't know who's done it, there's nothing you can really do. Um, so what you do is you put a magical curse out there against the person who has stolen something from you. Um, you're, by then, by doing that, you're making it a kind of a problem for the gods to solve, and you would hope that they would uh, sort of afflict the uh, the criminal with some dreadful disease or something. Um, and what you find there is that whether it's in Roman Bath in Britain or in Egypt or in the Near East, uh, these uh, these cursed tablets are very similar in the type of crime that they are dealing with. Very much about theft, uh, about sort of competition in a small uh, local environment. Very aggressive. Uh, you know, they're like internet trolls, you know, they really kind of are brutal with each other. Um, and it gives you, I think, a sense of how, uh, what life is really like at a fairly consistent level across the empire. You feel then from that information that life was that much more violent uh, in, in that society? I think you do get a sense that uh, from all of that evidence, particularly the petitions, just there is a certain routine level of, of violence. And remember that Rome was a big slave-owning society. Perhaps 10 to 15% of the whole empire's population were slave and could be treated with uh, great brutality. So I think people were used to violence in a way that we are you know, less used to it today. Uh, and I think it seems that people were in any kind of social conflict situation, they were quite quick to turn to, uh, to turn to violence in a way that we would probably be more uh, wary of doing. And the punishment for those crimes really seemed to be brutal. Can you give us some, some example, maybe, you know, describe what happened to, to thieves who were found guilty? Well, the, the thing about the Roman law is that it depended on your social status. You know, we think that punishment should be the same, whatever the, the status of the criminal, whether you're a, you know, the, the richest or the poorest in society. If you can commit the same crime, you should be treated the same. But the Romans didn't believe that. Uh, the lower your social status, the harsher the, the punishment was. So slaves in particular... If they ran away, which was effect stealing themselves from their masters, then they were highly likely to be crucified or they could be thrown to the wild beasts in the arenas, such as the Colosseum. Um, the most famous example of thieves who uh, are crucified are the two who are 
who are crucified alongside Jesus in, in the Gospels. Um, and so these are people at the bottom of society who, if they step out of line at all uh, and are caught, they will then be punished with uh, the utmost severity. Whereas if you were uh, an aristocrat, um, the worst that would happen to you would probably be a, a fine uh, or possibly exile. Uh, but you're not likely to have the kind of gruesome physical punishments that would would be um, uh, afflicted to those at the bottom of society. So is, it, is, if we're still talking about that particular level of crime, and you, you did point out that white collar crime, um, as we would know it today, seemed to be a very popular form of crime and followed closely by government graft. Absolutely. I mean, particularly the empire, as you, as you move into the later empire, it, it's become in history, uh, you know, from, from Gibbon's decline and fall onwards, uh, it's been seen as a particularly corrupt society. Uh, that the government is seen as becoming more and more corrupt, that if you wanted anything done, you had to pay somebody uh, in government to do it for you. Now, it's an interesting question that, you know, in reality, Rome, for all its achievements, was a pre-industrial society. Uh, it had limited resources. Uh, the government you know, had nothing like the kind of money at its disposal that a modern society would have. Its primary concern was law and order, and it was not there to provide free or cheap and easy access to law courts. Uh, in fact, the opposite, it really wanted to restrict access to those who had a real stake in the system, which is generally the powerful and the, and the rich. So they introduced a system of fees where you had to pay a schedule of fees for whatever you wanted. Now, Obviously, this was open to abuse, but you can interpret it as simply controlling access, you know, in the same way that effectively law, uh, the cost of law still does today. I mean, taking someone to court is really expensive. It's what rich people can do. You know, ordinary people like you and me uh, can't do it because it's just too expensive. Now, that doesn't mean we see our system as being inherently corrupt. Uh, you know, we just have a sort of limit on what we think is um, achievable. Uh, still in in that that topic, you you mentioned uh, there was an amusing passage where you talk about the benefits of a, I guess, a circuit court um, coming into a community because of all the hangers on who helped to pump up the economy of that particular community. Take take us through that anecdote. Yeah, so this is, this is a, a description of where the circuit judge who would sort of make a tour of the province uh, and hear cases, uh, you know, in the same way that in Britain you used to have assizes. Um, and, but there's a whole load of hangers-on. There's all the, you know, all the, the jurors have to come along and all the legal men and all his advisors and his, his soldiers and his attendants. And it's like having this massive kind of, a, a party coming to stay in the town. They're all spending freely. Uh, they're all filling up the hotels. And of course, there's all the people who want to access these courts coming into the town as well. So it's a real kind of um, almost like a, a legal festival going on um, that is, you know, is very far from the kind of sober, quiet uh, behavior that we might imagine uh, law courts were about. 
Well, let's let's talk about religion because that that really is a a, a, a primary issue uh, in, in in the Roman Empire. Uh, crime against religion was taken seriously, wasn't it? Absolutely. Now, this is something we're not really familiar with now. I mean, some countries still have blasphemy laws on the books, but they're very rarely uh, uh, used, certainly in the Western world. Um, but for the Romans, uh, religion sat at the heart of everything they did. I mean, they believed that they were successful, that they dominated their empire because the gods were on their side. Uh, they called this kind of cosy arrangement the Pax Deorum, the peace of the gods. Um, so anything, any criminal behaviour that might upset the gods uh, was seen as being particularly, uh, particularly dangerous and something that had to be stamped down on. And of course, historically, one of the most famous examples of that is the Vestal Virgins. If Vestal Virgins uh, broke their vow of chastity, then they could be buried alive. Uh, and whilst this did not happen often, it, it did happen sometimes. And clearly one can see that almost as a way of generating a scapegoat, that if, if things were going bad, then the Romans would assume that there must be something that had offended the gods. So you've therefore got to find what it is. And then you could almost pin the blame by, trump, by generating some trumped up uh, accusation against some poor Vestal Virgin who is then executed as a way of appeasing the gods. And it's that kind of scapegoating that you find later on very much against the Christians as well, that when, uh, when things go bad, for example, during the great fire of Rome in 64, when the city is almost obliterated, what does Nero do? He looks for a scapegoat. You know, what would have offended the gods so much that they want to wipe out the city? Uh, and he finds that scapegoat in the early Christian community and has uh, lots of them burnt, burnt alive uh, and thrown to the dogs. So for them, religion uh, and law and crime was, were very much uh, interconnected. So would you say that was the original relationship between Roman rule and Christianity? Uh, what, was that the, the, uh, the Christians served as a, a scapegoat? Uh, I mean, it, it changed eventually, and maybe you could describe how, how it changed and, and when it changed. Yeah, it, it's important to remember that on the whole, Rome tolerated other religions, and it, it also assimilated uh, other religions. Um, but if things went wrong, uh, then they would look for a religious rationale, and often that involved getting a scapegoat. So most of the time, the Roman state probably ignored Christians uh, and did not hunt them out or pursue them. Uh, but there were periods where this was not the case. So during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, when there's a bad plague, uh, there is uh, various attempts at persecution of the Christians then. Um, in the mid-third century, when Rome suffers a lot of invasions from uh, German tribes and uh, from the Parthian Empire, again, there is the first kind of systematic empire-wide uh, suppression of Christianity under the Emperor Decius. Um, so again, it's all, all about trying to appease the gods at a time when Rome is suffering. Um, and then the big persecution is under the Emperor Diocletian um, at the very beginning of the fourth century. Um, but interestingly, that does not appear to have been in response to any particular 
uh, disaster or, or the empire doing badly. So that just simply seems to be a, a vigorous reformist emperor trying to reassert traditional values. So Rome's behavior towards Christians is not consistent. It's not particularly coherent, um, but it's not, it's not supportive at all. It's fair to say that. Um, but it's the emperor after him, Constantine, uh, who is uh, looking for some kind of new way of expressing imperial power and its relationship to the divine, uh, who first has a vision and then uh, adopts Christianity as his favorite religion. Uh, in 312 AD. So to try to draw a conclusion from uh, your your writings, do you see a huge difference between that edginess of the Roman Empire uh, during its earlier stages and the, and to its declining stages? It, it basically started to fade away. Was there some truth to that myth that uh, the Romans generated about, uh, about the, the founding of Rome uh, with, with the twins? Well, it's certainly the case that they stop expanding militarily. Um, but then on the other hand, they had grown so vast, it became almost unwieldy as, as an, em an empire. It was sort of too big for any, any individual to govern. Um, it's, we should remember that the eastern half of the empire actually carries on for another thousand years. I mean, it's just we call it the Byzantine Empire, but they called themselves the Eastern Romans. So uh, we should be careful about just buying into the old Gibbon view of decline uh, and fall. But certainly in, in the western part of the empire, uh, it, it, does, uh, it does lose its kind of military strength. And part of that is perhaps it just loses some of its technological advantage compared with the, uh, the German tribes who, who learned from the Romans. You know, it's not perhaps so much that the Romans grew weak. It's that uh, their, uh, their opponents learned from them, grew stronger, uh, had better military tactics, and so were able to pose uh, more of a threat. What about um, the comparisons between the current current society, current civilization, compared to what we were looking at in those middle stages of of the empire, uh, you know, where was the empire that much more violent than than we are today? It, it's a difficult decision question because if you look at um, the Roman world, you know clearly. Some of it is particularly brutal. I mean, think about gladiatorial combats and crucifixion. Now, that is not something you see uh, in, in the world today, thank, thankfully. But on the other hand, I think the Romans would probably argue that uh, our economic system generates great inequality, uh, that it generates a lot of not necessarily slave labour, but almost kind of labor that is tied to uh, working in factories through poverty but we kind of shove all of our factories that produce all our cheap goods sort of in countries that we never go and visit whereas the romans sort of faced up to uh, the inequality that gave them the, uh, the the quality of life that they wanted and that of course was primarily through slaves 
Um, uh, slavery, for example, is illegal in every country in the world now, and yet it still exists effectively through sort of tied indentures and various NGOs estimate that there are perhaps as many as 30 million slaves uh, in the world today, which is more than there ever were in the, in the Roman Empire. So it's, um, you know, we, we have done a good job of creating uh, rights and, uh, and universal rights that we have some great ideals, but I think a Roman would probably say, well, you haven't actually delivered on them uh, much better than we have. You know, at least Rome delivered peace uh, you know, it was, a, it was a, a highly violent, unequal society, uh, but it was an unequal, violent world. Um, and it did deliver peace uh, across a vast uh, tract of land for centuries. Um, but how do, you, how do you make a moral judgment about an empire? You know, at the moment, you know, it's, it's a hot topic, isn't it? You know, that empire involves subjugating peoples, oppressing cultures, uh, is that a price that is ever worth paying? Uh, particularly when you go back into the pre-industrial world like Rome, it's, it's just such a complex uh, phenomenon that uh, how, do you, how do you weigh up on the one hand the benefits of peace against the, uh, the, the very high costs of empire for the people who were conquered? And that, I guess that really gives us pause for thought before we start patting ourselves on the back for how well we are behaving here. So Jerry, I thank you very much for taking time out uh, today to give us some insight uh, into this really fascinating period of history. I very much appreciate that. Been a pleasure. And I thank all of you for tuning in to Outrageous History. I'm Ernest Granson. We'll see you again soon. Outrageous History is produced by Northern Flicker Media.